over the next two evenings, I've, I'm going to look at the book of Galatians with you a little bit, and we're going to do it in one very big, wide-angle way tonight, and then in a very, very narrow, specific way tomorrow. So if you have a Bible and can turn to Galatians, that would be wonderful. Um, I think this is a great kind of time to look at the book of Galatians. It's a good year to do that. Um, this letter, probably more than any other, explains why the Protestant Reformation, which is the 500th anniversary of this year, why it happened. This book kind of powered the Reformation into the sort of churches, Protestant churches we're part of now. It's an, always an important time to go back and look at how it worked and why. And I want to begin by making a couple of observations that will help you see why Galatians still matters in an incredibly pressing, powerful way for our world today, even if and I'm sure this wouldn't be true here, but even if you didn't care what the Protestant Reformation was, I think here are two questions that the people in your communities might even have that would help you think, actually, Galatians really matters. So two observations for you to think about. Observation number one, virtually every religious group in the world looks socially and culturally similar. So if you were to travel around, even the parts of the world that we have traveled around today as a conference as we've been praying, and you were to go and look the way that Muslims pray and dress and worship and gather in Madagascar or Kenya or Thailand or Gaithersburg or Britain, you would find that they looked actually very similar. You might find some stylistic differences in some places, but broadly speaking, the, the liturgy, the gathering, the dress, the buildings, everything would actually look very similar. And they would, that would be true anywhere you go on earth. And if you were to go to a Hindu wedding in Washington, D.C., it would look and feel very, very similar to a Hindu wedding in Hyderabad or wherever. If you're a Buddhist or a Baha'i or a Confucian, you look pretty similar worldwide. So to practicing Jews. If I said to the word Mormon to you, no matter where in the world you're from, you would probably imagine a middle-class, middle-aged white American in a suit. And the same if, probably if I said Jehovah's Witness. But you can't say any of those things about Christianity. And some would say that's a problem. I think it's an interesting thing to explain at the very least. Nigerian Anglicans, Brazilian Pentecostals, Coptic believers who are often on the news because of attacks in Egypt, they look completely different. They, their Christianity would be almost unrecognizable from one another. Chinese house churches, Greek or Russian Orthodox believers with the hats and the long beards with oil, Prayer Mountain in Seoul, the Dutch Reformed, and you think, how on earth are these people worshiping? Are you guys sure you're worshiping the same God? I mean, it's not just that you physically look different, but everything about the way you express your worship seems to be contextually so different from one another, it's hard to believe you guys are all one. And I'd ask the question, why is that true? And why is it not true of almost every other religious group? Question one. Observation number two. Virtually every religious group in the world today is still based in its country of origin. Right? Islam has always been strongest and most dominant in the Middle East and North Africa, which is where it started, and that's always where it's been strongest, and it is to this very day. Hinduism has always been centered on India. Buddhism has always been centered on China. New religious movements, I'm sorry to say that in this country, but, well, where do they all come from? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science, Scientology, and many, many other variables pretty much all get their strength, their financial clout, their recruitment base, and their identity from North America. But Christianity is not like that at all. 
Christianity was originally centered in Jerusalem, and then it was centered in Antioch, and then it was centered in what's now Istanbul, and then it was centered in Rome, and then in Northern Europe, and then in North America, and now it's growing fastest in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, with quite a sprinkling of Far East and Asia involved as well in China. And my question is, thank you for the whoop. My question is, why is that true? Why is that true? Why are other religious groups focused where they've always been strong and Christianity bounces around all the time finding a new home as the centuries develop? Why are those two things true? That Christianity looks different in every culture on earth and that its headquarters move around all the time. And the answer is, to exaggerate a tiny bit but not very much, Galatians. Galatians is why. Galatians is the reason why Christianity takes on different flavors in every culture and Christianity continually moves its headquarters. Here's the story. Somewhere around 26 AD, Jewish prophet, whose name in his language would be Johannan ben Zacharias, begins gathering a renewal movement in the Judean desert and he's baptizing them in water and calling them to repent and follow Israel's God in a fresh way. And shortly afterwards, his cousin, who's a little younger than him, who's a builder named Yeshua ben Yosef, arrives and gets baptized himself and then starts a, a campaign, you could call it, of preaching, teaching, and demonstrating the empire of Israel's God. And he's wildly popular and then fiercely opposed. And then wildly popular and then fiercely opposed. And eventually, after three years, he's handed over to the Romans on charges of sedition and he is executed by crucifixion on what was probably Friday, April 7th, AD 30. But that Sunday, on April the 9th, his tomb, despite being guarded, is found empty, and a large number of his followers immediately report saying that he is alive and that they have witnessed him visibly alive in front of them. And seven weeks after that, 120 of his followers spill out into the streets in Jerusalem speaking in foreign languages, celebrating and announcing to the world that Yeshua ben Yosef is somehow alive and king of the world. And that sectarian Jewish movement faces strong opposition from mainstream Judaism, as you'd think it would, and a zealous young Pharisee named Shaul of Tarsus is a leading figure in tracking down and imprisoning all of these so-called Christians, which is originally a term of sort of identification slash abuse from people around them. But he has an eyewitness encounter with the risen Jesus himself and converts to Christianity in AD 34. 13 years later, after disappearing to well, we do know where, but it's pretty obscure for quite a long time. Under his Greek name of Paulos, or Paul, he and his colleague Barnabas begin a missionary journey, which will appear on this map, across what's now southern Turkey, planting churches across southern Galatia. We've literally just heard about Galatia, as PJ mentioned, as one of the groups of churches that were taking up an offering for the believers in Jerusalem. And he makes this journey across southern Galatia, and a year or so after that, after returning to Antioch in Syria, which is also on the map, sort of top right, Paul hears reports of what is happening in the churches in southern Turkey that he has planted, and I think it would be fair to say is a little bit annoyed by what he's heard. He goes absolutely postal and writes what is probably the most inappropriately furious text that has ever appeared in a religious book of any sort. I am astonished that you have done this. You morons, are you still so stupid? Who has bewitched you? Everybody who relies on the Torah is under a curse. I wish the people who have troubled you would go the whole way and castrate themselves and things like that. <laughs> and that would probably prompt the question to most of us, 
what on earth has happened? And that's not, the, that's not how the story would be intended to develop. What on earth has happened? And what's that got to do with the two observations about religion being expressed in different ways that we began with? Well, two things have happened under the influence of Jewish teachers, and this is what Galatians is about. Okay, so this is just, this evening is just an overview of all the things that are happening in Galatians, or an attempt to do that. There are two things that have happened under the influence of Jewish teachers, and Paul is very, very angry about both of them. One of the things that's happened in the church is that Jewish people have stopped eating with Gentile people. And the other thing that's happened in the church is that Gentiles have started getting circumcised like Jewish people do in order to become full members of God's people. Okay? So, Jewish people have stopped eating together with Gentiles. That is problem number one. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 will appear, and it says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. I should just clarify, because this has got me into hot water before. Circumcision party means group of sectarian circumcisers, not, hey, let's have a circumcision party. <laughs> just to clarify, that would be an extreme. Even in Galatia, they didn't go in for that. That would be very weird. <laughs> and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now the mood of that paragraph, you might actually, you may even have been following the developments in the Southern Baptist Convention in the last 24 hours. And the, the resolution that was proposed denouncing white supremacy in the all right and the fact that initially, because of a slightly complex committee system, it didn't pass. And there was absolute outrage from many, rightly outrage from many, including me. You, I cannot believe you haven't condemned this. You are clearly in the wrong. You must condemn all forms of white supremacy. What are you doing? And it kind of has this mood, this paragraph, doesn't it? How could you do that? And of course, Paul is speaking this way to the Apostle Peter. But the issue at stake is that Jews have stopped eating with Gentiles and Peter is party to it. That's issue number one. Issue number two that's prompted this letter is that Gentiles have started to be circumcised like Jews do in order to become full members of God's people. And this is chapter five, verses one to six. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. And that final sentence may be the most surprising thing that any Jew says in the entire New Testament. Up there, it's up there with before Abraham was, I am, as a kind of, did he really just say that moment in the New Testament? So those are the two issues that are at stake. Gentiles are Jews are withdrawing from eating with Gentiles, Gentiles are getting circumcised like Jews do in order to feel fully part of God's people. 
If you wanted an even briefer summary of what's at stake in Galatians, food foreskins, <laughs> right? So if you go, get nothing else from this evening, you get that, okay? Now to us, that might sound a little trivial as if it's an outworking of the gospel that we could get to in due course. Why does it matter? You guys are, okay, they're quibbling. They haven't quite figured out the application, but they believe in Jesus, so that's all right, right? We can just leave them to figure out the application in time, surely. But to Paul, it is the absolute heart of the gospel that those things are not so. And that the integration of Jew and Gentile in those two significant areas, food and foreskins, the fact that Gentiles are of equal status with the Jews in the people of God, whether they get circumcised or not, and therefore they should all eat together, that is at the heart of the gospel. That's not an incidental thing that you eventually get to. And it's worth bearing in mind in the context of even the last 24 hours. Racial reconciliation is not a sort of add-on that you get to 11 years into becoming a believer. So it's at the very heart of what Paul is writing about and what makes him angrier, in my reading, than anything else he ever encounters. And the reason, I guess the best, reason, best way of showing that might be to give an analogy in a modern-ish modern instance, okay? Some of us here, are, we've got a number of brothers and sisters here from South Africa, and uh, this illustration just as I hope will help you um, and I found it, Tom Wright uses it, but I think it's a very good illustration. He says, imagine uh, a missionary working in, a, in a South Africa under apartheid 25, 30, 40 years ago. Imagine a missionary who decides that the best way of demonstrating the love of Jesus to people is to set up mixed-race schools in apartheid South Africa where black and white children and colored children can all learn together. And they d deliberately build schools that have one schoolroom and one dining room or refectory and one set of toilets and one set of drinking fountains for boys and girls and so on because they want to integrate everything and they say we're going to teach in a mixture of languages and we're going to make sure that everything about this school is integrated because we want these children to grow up recognizing that one another are equals in the sight of God and to be loved and treasured as friends and brothers and sisters. And you build, you're a missionary, and you build that school along with your, your friends, and you, you appoint a, a staff, a board of governors, if you like, and then you go on to another town or another village in which you're going to do the same thing again. And you regard that as part of your life's work. And then word reaches you that the new governing board has been infiltrated by a handful of people who, well-meaning though they may seem, have got different convictions about the nature of integration. And what they've concluded and convinced the rest of the governors about is that Koza children and Zulu children and white children and Afrikaners children learn better when they're in groups on their own, away from one another. So they end up building a school. The school is the, still the outside of the building is still there, but they end up partitioning the classroom because they say, actually, but these, some of these people speak totally different languages and they don't communicate well so we'll teach them over here and them over here and then they say actually we think we should partition the, the meal room as well because that, they eat completely different diets these people eat different things white kids and black kids in South Africa are eating different enough diets we need to separate them out and actually eventually it gets to the toilets and the drinking fountains and everything the entire school becomes segregated along racial lines and you get news of this and you come back and see the school exactly as they've told you, how do you feel? What you would feel, I suspect, is the entire purpose of this thing I built was that people would be one and you have deliberately made them two or three or nine. And I hate the fact that you have and I'm so angry, I wanna tear the whole thing down and start again. And if I see any of you, you God help me if I could. 
And I think you might well say things like, they might as well go the whole way and cut themselves in half or whatever. You might well make a, a reference to what they've done and apply it to your state of anger about what you think they should do next. The whole point of Paul's message is that Jesus is king of the whole world, not just the Jews, and that he died for the whole world, not just the Jews, and that all who believe in him can be rescued, all of them, not just the Jews. So the separation of Jews and Gentiles at the meal table, which in Eastern cultures today is a massive moment of social integration. I think it is in Western cultures too, actually, but my goodness, you go to the Middle East, who you eat with matters greatly. People are very aware of who is invited to whose home and who's not. And so you do that. You separate them out at the meal table. That is tantamount to saying that black children and white children have to drink from different drinking fountains. And the insistence that Gentiles have to get circumcised to properly join, you know, you're allowed in. You can worship Israel's God. If you really want to get in, you have to get circumcised. It's effectively saying you have to become Jewish in the process in order to really worship Jesus. And that is an appalling denial for Paul of the universal scope of the gospel. It's the equivalent of saying black children are welcome at our white school as long as they act like white children. This isn't even a hypothetical. Some of you, I know cricket is something. There'll be some, how many people in this room are from countries where they play cricket? And how many people are in countries where they would rather eat their own face than play cricket? <laughs> All right, okay. So cricket analogy, but you'll get the image. One of the greatest, some would say the greatest batsman of all time, certainly one of the greatest batsmen of all time is a black West Indian cricketer called Viv Richards. He's an unbelievably talented. You watch the guy bat and you think, hey, Balls are coming at him at 90 miles an hour. He can step side on and flip the ball up over the long leg boundary. It's unbelievable to watch. And he was very close friends with Ian Botham, who was a famous English cricketer. And the two of them in the 1980s were both uh, at Somerset Cricket Club. And there was a deal on the table during a game, during apartheid, that was offering the English cricket team to come and play cricket in South Africa. And obviously, some of us will know that, you know, very complicated history about sport and South Africa during apartheid and so on. And there was a meeting at one point where they were trying to get Ian Botham, who's a big name. We wanted to get him to come on the tour. And he said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, you, you, you guys want me to come and play. And obviously, Viv Richards is West Indian. You want him to come and play. What would happen, given the apartheid system, if me and Viv wanted to just hang out on the beach and have a beer and play beach cricket and just mess around together? Would that, is that something you guys are okay with? And the person having the meeting with him said, quote, oh, that's easy we'll make Viv an honorary white man. And Ian Botham said, at that point, it was just that we were, this was never gonna, ever going to happen. I walked out of the room and said, no way are we ever going to do that. What a, what a phrase, an honorary white man. Now, I read that story before I'd read Galatians. But when I read Galatians, I sensed something of the indignancy of what you would feel if someone said that your best friend was going to have to become an honorary white guy in order to join you. And I saw that, I think Paul is saying, he's seeing in what, even Peter has fallen for it, but certainly seeing in what the Judaizers are saying is, you can, you're welcome, but only if you become exactly like us. And Paul's response in Galatians has various sides to it, but is effectively establishing beyond any doubt that divisions of any form like that, where you have to become like you to get in, male and female, that division is gone. You do not have to get women to become like men, or for that matter, men to become like women, in order to become fully part of the people of God. Jew and Gentile, that's gone as a basis for standing before God. Black and white, slave and free, those divisions cannot ever exist in the church of Jesus Christ. 
Because to do so would deny that Jesus was king of the world. He would undermine the universality of the scope of the gospel. And in some ways, in that sense, the key text in the letter, in some ways, is chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, which again is just going to appear right now. Now, before faith came, Paul is contrasting a sort of chronology of salvation here. Until the arrival of faith, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, or our sort of the slave who used to take you off to school. You might even say, our nanny. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's what marks you out. Have you got faith? Are you baptized? If you are, it doesn't matter what race you're from, doesn't matter your religious background, you're all one. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So there is no gradation here. Some of us are descended from Abraham, don't you know? I mean, this goes way back, John the Baptist. You, Jesus and people like that, you, God can do that from the stones. Please don't act like being descended from Abraham. I mean, how hard did you have to work to do that? That's not, that's not impressive. If you are Christ, you are part of the seed of Abraham and you are on the same standing as everybody else who is. And that, to return to those questions we started with, is why Christianity has for its many, many failings, right? All of us in this room are aware in our own culture of where we have not lived up to this vision. I imagine almost all of us are probably from nations where that's happened to some degree. But that's why Christianity has for its failings nevertheless always been somehow by the grace of God a globally, socially, and racially diverse movement. Because of this. Because of this letter and because of the anger and almost venom with which it was written. A lot of Christians have shut their ears to it and of course to this day still do. But this sets a grenade under any sort of stratification of the people of God along ethnic lines. Having said that, it would I think be a mistake to act like that was the only thing going on in Galatians. In other words, and and there are some readings of Galatians which do, which effectively say Galatians is basically a call for inclusiveness which, let's face it, were that all Galatians was doing would actually be pretty convenient for a lot of more Western-minded, liberal-minded, inclusive-minded people in many of the nations we come from here. That would actually be quite handy. You say, well, Galatians isn't really a challenge. It's, it's basically a 21st century diversity policy in the form of a first century letter. Or it's a leftish op-ed in a major left, left-leaning newspaper or something. But the chief problem in Galatia is not that one group is excluding another. The chief problem in Galatia is that in doing that, they are living as if the grace of God shown in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and independent of human measures of values and status, as if the grace of God didn't matter. That's why it's so damaging, because they're acting as if, as soon as I exclude you, because you don't measure up to my standard, I'm implying that my standard has something to do with anything, which it doesn't. I'm implying that there is something other than the grace of God that is going to rescue me. Because if, if that weren't the case, I'd have no basis for excluding you. So Galatians is not a diversity policy. It is a gospel tract focusing on the gracious character of God and the universality of what he's done in Christ and the sweeping consequences of those things. 
And he does that in order to try and restore people to a recognition of what the gospel is and means for everybody who believes it. Now, I've got a few cups down here, which I'm going to come and grab. And uh, you have Russian dolls. Have you seen Russian dolls? These are Russian Starbucks cups, courtesy of Barnes & Noble this afternoon. So you have, uh, we have Tall and uh, Grande and Venti, I believe, and they all fit nicely inside one another. And uh, Paul deals with the implications and the scope of the gospel at three levels, and each one sits inside a level that's even larger than itself, right? So you have a personal level gospel, which Paul hammers and spends a lot of time on in chapter two and elsewhere. And you have a corporate level gospel, which is what we've been focusing on until now, which is what Paul hammers in chapter three, particularly. And then you have a cosmic level gospel, which is a gospel for the world, which Paul hammers in chapters one and six in particular. And each one of them, nestles inside a bigger one. So there is a personal gospel which sits inside a corporate gospel which sits inside a cosmic gospel. So I, this time last year, I watched, I'm never gonna read it, it's far too long, I watched War and Peace. So BBC did an adaptation in my country of War and Peace and some of you, has anyone, I'd be love to see it, has anybody read it? Joel Virgo, have you read it? Oh, we have, we've got two, any advance on two? Okay, people who've read, wow, six, eight. That's impressive, I take my hat off to you. War and Peace, huge novel, I watched the TV adaptation because I didn't think I was ever going to read it. And I found myself thinking, wow, this is an interesting story because at one level, it's just a story about whether or not this couple are going to get together. You know, it's lovely. I'm, I really, I'm really rooting for Paul Dano's character. I really hope he gets Lily James in the end. That's what I was thinking. But at another level, and that's a personal level, at another level, I thought, but the story isn't really primarily about, it's not just about those two, and it isn't even really primarily about those two. Those two are sort of nestled within a corporate story which is about the fate of these five aristocratic families in Russia around the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that's, and it's a sort of corporate story, but that itself is nestled within a cosmic story about the fate of Russia and France and, in fact, the whole of Europe and, in fact, the future of much of the world because Russia and France and Britain and other countries at the time were all over the world, as you know. And so there is, in some ways a threefold story taking place simultaneously. And if you say, what's the story about? It would be very easy for some of us to zero in on the love story. And then some of us would say, oh, no, it's not about that. It's about this sort of the families. And some of us, no, it's not about that. It's about the whole world. And of course, the answer is that it's about all three of them, but each one nestled inside another in the right sort of way. Now, that might be not a familiar story. So we do it with Romeo and Juliet. Okay, the Romeo and Juliet, you do this. You say, oh, this is wonderful. It's a love story, two lovers. You did Romeo and Juliet at school. You watched um, Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio, and you went, oh, isn't it lovely? What? It's just basically a lovely young couple. And you think, well, kind of. That's important. That's in there. But that's embedded inside a story about two families, which is really what the story's dramatically, dramatic effect comes from, because the two lovers, well, boy meets girl, that happens all the time. The stories don't last 500 years when they're just boy meets girl. They, are, they last 500 years when it's boy meets girl, and their families hate each other and are trying to kill each other. But actually, I then was convinced about 10 years back by a literary critic that what's really going on in Romeo and Juliet is that actually behind that, there's a story about Protestants and Catholics and baptism and the incompatibility of two different ways of living in Elizabethan England and whether or not they're ever going to be able to get along without killing one another and whether or not people from one tribe have to die to their name in order to become part of another tribe, which, of course, you then read Romeo and Juliet that way, and you think, oh, yeah, newly baptized, I'll die my name. <gasps> and then, if, of course, they end up killing themselves. You think, no, it's a massive comment on Elizabethan England and religious wars, which Shakespeare didn't know at the time, but were going to destroy Europe 50 years after he wrote it. 
And you see, stories operate at multiple levels. There's a personal level, there's a corporate level, there's a cosmic level. Lord of the Rings, let's tell Lord of the Rings as at this level, you end up with, well, there are these two little guys with furry feet and they go on a long, long journey and they have some scary encounters, but they survive and all live happily ever after. Somebody tells that's what Lord of the Rings is about. You're like, I think you may have missed it. That's not what it's about. It's actually about the fate of these whole enormous communities. It's about the fate of Gondor and Rohan and the Shire and are they going to make it and what's going to happen to Rivendell and so on. And of course, that is embedded within a much larger story about the whole of Middle-earth and about good and evil and about the defeat of Sauron and about the destruction of a ring. You've got to read those stories at three levels to make any sense of any of the three levels, haven't you? If you don't realize the connectedness between them and you individualize it, you lose the cosmic drama. If you tell it as if it's only cosmic, you find it difficult to understand why you should care at a personal level. We do that with stories all the time, hot desking between different meanings, but the same is true of Galatians. Right? It's a personal account of the grace of God in Christ. A person is not counted righteous by observing works of the Torah, the circumcision or the food laws, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we now live by the Spirit and not by the flesh or by the law. That is the personal level meaning of Galatians. And it's completely true and it's glorious. And it's the basis for our entire faith. But that's embedded within a corporate level story, which is that the, the Torah phase, the law phase of all of Israel's long story is now over. The Torah was a nanny that took us to school to lead us to Christ. But once you hand the nanny hands over the child into the hands of the schoolmaster, the nanny can go home. But then once the, the guardian takes the child through to maturity to the point where they can leave the nanny's care, the nanny can retire into the background because the child is now mature and able to take on a new kind of identity on their own terms. And Paul's saying that's what the Torah has done. Circumcision, food laws, all of that have served that purpose. It's come to its culmination, its destination in Christ. And now Torah can go back and say, job done. I led you to Jesus. And go into the background happy that it served its function, even as everything in it is holy, righteous, and good. It has now completed the purpose for which God gave it. And that story is embedded within a cosmic story, which is in Galatians 1.4, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Notice, not just to deliver us from the things that we had done, as glorious as that is. I've done some things I'm very glad have been scrubbed by the grace of God, but that's not all God did. Actually, God gave his son, or Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age, this world with all of its corruption and destruction and horribleness and all the things that we hate about it that we will one day find it liberated from. Jesus gave himself to liberate us from the whole evil age. The whole cosmos is gonna be renewed. Uncircumcision and circumcision, he says in chapter six, verse 16, don't count for anything. What counts is new creation. Right? Not just that you have forgiveness, praise God. Not even that Jew and Gentile, black, white, slave free are all together in the church. Praise God for that. But that beyond both of those things, new creation has come through Jesus Christ. The evil age is over. Long live the king. Because of Jesus, we have a new life and a new community and a new world. That's the meaning of Galatians. And those three themes all come together in perhaps the most beautiful section of Galatians, namely chapter four and verses one to seven, which is the last text we'll look at. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, 
though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This, keep it up here for a second. This is a story of personal freedom. You are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if you're a son or a daughter, then you're an heir in God's. But it's also a story of corporate freedom. God sent forth his son to redeem all those born under the law. It's a story of freedom for the people of God collectively from the previous age into a new age in which the marker of those who believe is faith and baptism and not circumcision. And it's also a story of cosmic freedom. We also as children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. You may have noticed the passage is also emphatically and beautifully Trinitarian, like God sent his son, God has sent the spirit of his son crying, Abba, Father. It's hard to find a more beautiful text that demonstrates how the Trinity and the gospel are bound up one with the other. So the message of Galatians is basically this. The three-in-one God has brought about a glorious three-in-one rescue triple whammy. He has delivered, do you have that expression here? You're laughing, I assume maybe not. Triple whammy. It's good, you can put that on a, put that on a postcard and say, that, say you're here. He has delivered, what he's done is he's delivered individuals from having to keep Torah to be part of God's people so that instead they live by the Spirit and produce fruit of the Spirit instead of works of the flesh. He has delivered his people as a whole from being divided along ethnic or any other lines, gender lines, social status lines, anything. And he has delivered the world from slavery and begun to make it new by the power of the Spirit's. And that means that the gospel of Jesus is not about food or foreskins or flesh. It's about faith and forgiveness and family and freedom and fruit and favor from our Father. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful at a personal level that this letter was written and that what it says is true and that the grace of God does not take into account any social or human markers of status to decide who gets in and who's not. It instead takes simply the work of Christ on our behalf and our trust in him and nothing more. Thank you personally, thank you corporately that this room is like a beautiful little taste of the oneness of the people of God that stretches back across 20 centuries and actually before that, and stretches forward into the future, stretches across 200 nations, and says, you guys have all become one, because for as different as you are, you all worship Jesus and worship the Lamb who was slain for you. And thank you, Lord, for, you, for rescuing the world, that you have let, liberated us from an age that was oppressive and dark and brought about a new creation, that one day there will be no crying or tears or misery or sorrow or suffering or sickness of any kind, but nothing but Christ in all. We thank you for the gospel at all three levels, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.